Welcome to Hacking the Self. I'm Adrian Baker. It's been almost a year since the last episode. In fact, I think it's been right around a year. And uh, as I announced, I took a pause in the podcast at the time because after several years of basically trying a lot of different practices, you know, meditation and yoga, I was sort of in a exploratory phase, which often happens when people initially get into spirituality or that it still doesn't always feel like a right fit or something that's applicable, but I use for lack of a better word. And after a period of time, that focus went from an exploratory one to really narrowing for me. And that clarity came about as I I graduated, as I was approaching graduation from my two-year mindfulness meditation training with Jack Cornfield and Tar Brock. And I reflected on what had made the biggest difference in my life in terms of the many different things I tried. And, and there were many different practices that really had a big impact on me in a positive way, physical and mental health. But for me, the, the definitely the biggest transformation came about through mindfulness meditation or even more specifically studying in the Buddhist tradition that mindfulness comes from and really sitting silent retreats, uh, which I do not equate with the be all and end all of what it means to be a good practitioner or fill in whatever blank you want to there. But I do think it can make a really big difference in terms of one's life. And so for that reason, it became really clear that I wanted to focus on mindfulness. And for that reason, I paused hacking the self, which reflected my open-ended nature of my journey up until that point to really focus on developing my newly growing mindfulness meditation business and that website and content for that website. And that was part of it. And then the other part was I've just been sitting a fair amount of silent retreats. So wasn't doing content creation on any front while I was doing that. And so I wasn't quite sure exactly how these two ventures would fit together. Clearly, there was a lot of overlap. And in fact, looking back at Hacking the Self, which I knew, you know, I mean, overwhelmingly, if you look at the episodes, most of them are about either meditation or yoga or psychedelics. And the common theme there, the interest is in you know, consciousness. Consciousness sounds very cerebral, but the heart mind, you know, exploring the nature of the mind. And again, even that can sound, you know, very cerebral, though it's certainly not intended in that way when you talk about it from a contemplative perspective. But it's it's basically what does it mean to live a meaningful life or what does it mean to live, you know, a happy life? And to do that in a way that's actually a practice that transforms, a practice that brings you into embodiment, practice that helps you let go of, you know, reactivity and step into a space of spaciousness and help to have some sense of discernment and wisdom over time. And that's a practice rather than it's a kind of knowledge that's not intellectual. Knowledge probably isn't even the right word, the difference between wisdom and knowledge. It wasn't really clear how I'd bring those two together, even though there was this clear theme and this clear driving interest, right, in 
contemplative practices that was underpinning the show. There's certain things that didn't feel maybe seamless about integrating the two. And, you know, and sort of giving it some time and thinking about what it is I want to offer in terms of, you know, my meditation, I don't harbor those feelings or reservations at all anymore. And I sort of feel like whatever, whatever sort of smaller in the grand scheme of things, discrepancies there are, are overwhelmingly outweighed by the fact that I'd love to offer that content, much of which is, most of which is relevant and beneficial to people who might be connecting and come across that content through the, through my meditation website. And it's really important to me that I actually wanted to continue the podcast because I always love the podcast. And so I'm going to be continuing it and it'll have a narrower focus now, which is appropriate to where I am in my journey. So I would say if you enjoyed the podcast before, chances are you're going to enjoy it going forward. And as I've always said, like any podcast, even my favorite podcasts, you know, those hosts tend to have a few common themes and I might be into some of them, but not all of them. And that may well be the case here. You know, you'll tune in for some and not others. And if so, that's fine. And I think you'll find if you're interested in, in particular meditation and the nature of the mind, you'll find that on this new podcast. And I certainly won't hesitate to talk about something like psychedelics when it's relevant. But the new podcast is really going to talk about, or I should say the podcast going forward, because it will have the same name, will really focus on meditation and also really unpacking the Dharma, the Dharma being a term that refers to the teachings of the Buddha. But I'm very interested in a secular form of Dharma, to borrow a term from a, a thinker on this topic. I really like Stephen Batchelor. You know, how do we make these teachings relevant to anyone who's interested, you know, regardless of their point of view, regardless of they're religious or not religious, spiritual or not, or allergic to that term. Cause I really do view, again, I'm borrowing from the way Stephen Batchelor describes Buddhism. It's, it's always, Buddhism has always been something that's adapted over time based on time and place. And it's really a constantly evolving school of awakening rather than a particular, rather than much of the other religious trappings that come along with it. If you're interested in more of that, I'd highly recommend reading some of Stephen's books after Buddhism being one of them, where he makes these kind of statements more eloquently than myself. But yeah, I strongly feel that this is something that has value to add. And I, I want to make these teachings relevant for people. And I, I want to grapple in my mind, I think, with other people, whether it's they're within the Buddhist community, squarely in, or they're kind of on the outside a layer, whether it's mindfulness meditation or even an outside layer of that, who want to make sense of these teachings that come from a wonderful tradition, but they come from a different time and place. Uh, they also come from a monastic setting that Though the teachings themselves are very powerful, the difference in our context in the 21st century, wherever you're living, our lives are very different. And we need to adapt these teachings to suit you know, our own lives. And that means wrestling, I think, with some of the, some of the way these teachings are passed down rather than accepting them blindly. So I hope to have conversations around not only meditation, but the teachings of the Buddha in a way that are 
applicable and contemporary, you know, to those of us not being monks, but living in the world, talking about relationships, sexuality, you know, business, finance, in addition to practice, you know, it really needs to speak to every facet of your life. Spirituality, again, to use a term that I still find problematic, perhaps, but using it for lack of a better word. Spirituality is something that can't be separate from the rest of your life to the extent that it is separate or partitioned off from parts of your life. It will be ineffective to that extent that it is separate, right? It, it really needs to be integrated to help you make sense of, of all of the ways in which you engage with the world. And so uh, I look forward to having these conversations on this podcast and turning to today's talk. Today is really the first talk and the first guest in sort of this 2.0 iteration. And he's an excellent first guest to have. So let me introduce Amarinato and say briefly before I read his bio that I became interested in speaking with him because he was a monk for 15 years. And he was a monk under a teacher, a very well-regarded teacher named Ajarn Sumedho, who's in a lineage going back to Ajarn Shah in the Thai forest tradition, which is a lineage that I really connect with. And that is very popular to many people who practice in the West, whether they're conscious of it or not, because many people who started Buddhist retreat centers in the West or even teach mindfulness meditation perhaps learned from Ajahn Chah, teachers such as Jack Cornfield, for example. So Marinato was a student of Ajahn Tomatoes, which interested me. And also the fact that Marinato had been a Buddhist monk for 15 years, but was now a householder, meant that he was able to wrestle with a lot of these conversations of how we apply these teachings since he's left the monkhood and been living in the world. And so... He's a great guest. We've had two conversations. This is the first of them. And uh, with that, let me just read his bio. So Amarnatha was a Buddhist monk for 15 years. He spent long periods alone dealing with uncertainty and contemplating the deeper questions in life. He has a degree in AI. He's been a world explorer and a supervisor and mentor to mindfulness teachers, facilitators, and spiritual leaders. He works one-to-one with contemplatives and meditators that are stuck in their practice. He's also worked as a mindfulness-based executive coach who's helped leaders, teams, and organizations stay calm and connected in complex situations so they can awaken to their true potential. By using the Playful Monk approach he developed, you can find out more at playfulmonk.net. You can also read more about him on his website at amaranato.com. And you can see the spelling for that in the title and post for the show. So with that, let me turn to my conversation with Amarinato. I hope you enjoy, and please, as always, feel free to leave your comments on the Hacking the Self Facebook page. Your continued support makes future episodes possible. You can help by heading over to patreon.com slash hacking the self. Let's begin then, and let me start just by thanking you so much for making the time to to speak with me. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. And I've given the the guests a little bit of background in the introduction in terms of the theme, which is going to be about locating the householder path within Theravada Buddhism. And I briefly introduce you there, just pulling from your bio and your website. But 
I'd really love to start with just giving the audience a sense of your background, starting with what drew you to the practice of meditation in the first place. Great. Well, thank you. <laughs> Do you know, my life has been uh, one of real uncertainty and sort of unclarity in a way. So I've sort of done everything backwards. I actually started off in, in a computer industry and that led me to go to university. And at university, I studied artificial intelligence. And when I got to the end of all of that, I decided I really didn't want to go back into the computer industry. So I went traveling around the world. And during that time, I thought I should, you know, do the thing, experience this, that and the other. And one of them was to experience meditation. And so I was in Australia, Perth, and I was working for a charity, a drug rehabilitation center doing door knocking. So I knock on people's doors, you know, asking for money. And what happened was that I found out later that the way that they rehabilitated the drug addicts was through meditation and I could join that course. So they arranged for me to, to join this 10-day course and it was in the Goenka tradition. During that course, people kept coming up to me and saying, you know, um, why are you laughing? Uh, you, most people on these courses seem to suffer and you seem to be smiling all the time. Why is that? And it's like I'd found what I was looking for. So this started at what I would call a calling in me, a, a very strong resonance, really, to become a monk. And that's, so it took a few more years, and there's a lot of stories in between it. But basically around about two years later after that, I did a one-month Goenka retreat, and I cycled from the retreat center in England to Amravati Buddhist Monastery, which was a couple of days cycle ride. And I never left. I stayed there for 10 years. And then I did another five years as a sort of freelance monk. That's what brought me to becoming a monk, really. It was an inner calling. There was no decision-making process. Mm. There was no thought in it. It was just, you're going to do this. And I was very adamant when I arrived at the monastery that I was going to become a monk. Very. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah, because what jumps out, I mean, and perhaps just what you said, you just knew there's no rhyme or reason to it. It's not yes. a logical thing. You Correct. know, you just knew. But it is so interesting because there's a couple years there, and I read on your bio where you were studying at different meditation centers in Asia and Europe. And, you know, you're studying at a time when you absolutely could have practiced very intensively in meditation centers that were already available you know, in the West and not had to have gone down that path. And being a monastic is really bringing on a whole nother set of other responsibilities and challenges. So I'm so tempted to ask what was underneath it, but perhaps it's just there was something deep inside of you. It can't be explained. Is that yeah, it? That's really it. It's kind of totally bizarre because where I live in London, where I was born in London, was about 10 miles from a very famous Thai temple. Hmm. And the abbot of Amravati used to go there regularly. In fact, he probably passed the road where I was born. <laughs> so this is the drug for me now. Yeah. So it kind of really totally strange. And I didn't know anything really about other meditation centers, other traditions, or whatever. I was in Thailand. I went to Wat Swan Mok in Buddha Dasa's monastery. I really enjoyed it there. But I read Ajahn Chah, and I thought. I just couldn't get it. I didn't understand. How does this guy living in the forest have so much wisdom? 
And it just set a chain of events off. I met another person in in India when I was traveling who just said, you know, you ought to go and stay in the monastery in Switzerland on your way back. So actually, I stayed in the monastery in Switzerland and it just kept getting stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger. I Really, there was no decision making, no research, nothing. It was just, I'm going to this monastery. I didn't know what I was really setting myself up for. You know, I didn't really get the whole renunciation thing. And I sort of knew about it. But my main thing about joining the monastery was that Amravati and the Forest Sangha tradition had a lot of monks that had done the overland trip. And I thought that that was a really good idea to be amongst those types of people because they would understand me more. And the other thing for joining Amravati was I really wanted to have a teacher in the West. You know, I wanted somebody who, who are, in retrospect, understood the Western mind. So yeah. that's very important. <laughs> yeah, very. You know, I just turned up and that was it. I there was no sense, no sense to whatsoever. Even now, it sort of doesn't make sense. Other than you know the element of safety, going to a retreat center is not the same thing as going and living in a monastery. You know, I lived in a Goenka center for two years in England already before I joined the monastery. So I already had experience of that, but it was very different. Hmm. You know, when you join the monastery, it's a life. It is your life. You're not on retreat all the time. You don't spend hours and hours and hours sitting on a cushion. In some monasteries in Asia, you can do that, but not at Amravati. We also worked really hard. Ajahn Chah's approach was sort of, a work-life balance in a way. You would work in the monastery as well. Besides that, I mean, we had our three-month group retreat every year, but it was this really sense of trying to bring meditation into daily life in the monastic life. Yeah, you know, that's, I mean, that's a really great setup. So I I was going to ask you this even a bit later, but you've just really teed it up right there. And I do think it's so important. So let's talk about it. I mean, the approach to meditation in the West that most people are getting at these retreat centers, you know, it's establishing a very particular relationship to practice and giving you a very specific model of practice. And the emphasis is on practice overwhelmingly. It's very intensive practice, practice, practice. And it's taken me a little bit of time to appreciate perhaps some of the the critiques of that, some of the criticism people have of that, including from monastics. And it seems that I hear some of those criticism coming from Thai forest tradition, monastics, you know, coming from people also in the lineage of Ajarn Shah. Ajarn Amaro was one of those people and talking about some of the issues that they thought that could sort of create problems for with householders. And I'm just curious kind of your take on that, having been in both of those contexts, you're in a unique position to comment on it, acknowledging that Goenka has his own approach. But what do you think are the pros and cons, let's say, of practicing in a retreat center like Spirit Rock or IMS in the US or Gaia House in the UK, where you're just practicing, sitting, walking all the time. What are the pros of that and also the cons of that, and specifically for people who are householders? So as a monk, I was pretty um, out of the convention in a way. I was running these family camps at the monastery. So I was already involved in sort of lay life a little bit, you know, obviously not as a lay person, but in lay life, what would work? So when I went to Australia and I started running my own events, I realized that running a silent retreat wasn't very helpful for people. 
So I never actually did that. There was a lot of silence in my retreats. I actually, the first two days of my 10-day retreat was lying down. You didn't have to lie down, but most people did because they were exhausted. And then, and then later on, there would be some interpersonal work. I've actually never been to IMS or even Guy House. So I can't say exactly, you know, what they do. But, uh, you know, the, each of them has their benefits. The monastic form can be really helpful. It's got the, you know, the ethical, the ethical conduct, but it misses the interpersonal skills. The forest tradition, you know, the monastic tradition was set up about wandering monks. And then maybe a little bit of the Vinaya was about how they come together. And in the lay life, you're compressed in time. You know, you've got this short period of time to go and do a retreat, a weekend retreat, and try and get something out of it, try and find some peace. Whereas in the monastery, you know, you've got much more time because it's your life. You can really relax into it. You can see all the ups and downs. So each one has its benefits. And usually the criticism is around like mindfulness, you know, this, the word mindfulness and how it's used in the West. For me, you know, what's really missing is, is not so much the ethics, but the, the relational part of that. And that was also missing in the monastery. So as these traditions get shifted, they get brought from one place to the next. What is missing is the contemplative angle. Actually, how do you do it? How do you bring your practice into, into daily life? How do you make it work for you beyond all the sitting and walking? And that's why I made most of my retreats interactive so that you could experiment between silence and movement, between silence and talking. That seemed to really help people. You know, that each one has got its own thing. I, from the monastery, I learned how to use form really well. So when I came back into the, to the world, if you like, into lay life, I could still work with form. So if you just adopt a set of practices, you know, sitting and walking, and you just, that's all you do, well, that'll develop a certain capacity of the mind. You know, it might develop you into a really good meditator, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're, you'll have any insight. In the monastery tradition, we, there was this reflective and inquiry, and maybe that's also just at Amravati, the way Ajahn Sumedho taught. I gather that from his teachings. Can yeah. you say a little bit about that reflective inquiry as Ajahn Sumedho taught? Yeah, for those so, so the thing is, what I learned was that as you calm down, you settle down into yourself, then the natural reflective capacity arises, and you just have to recognize, you have to recognize that. It's not, you know, you could say like my three years of traveling, three and a half years of traveling, allowed me to start to self-reflect. I didn't have a teacher then. I didn't, you know, I did a lot of hardcore Goenka retreats. But somehow I also, the reflective capacity, and then when it was really labeled at the monastery with Ajahn Sumedho's teaching and this sense of inquiry, you know, there's two types, if you like. There's the contemplation, which is, think sort of analyzing if you like things and then there's a reflective stance which is about just really allowing things to be the way that they are and recognizing the arising of insight and uh, by doing that you learn to adapt and use uh, upaya skillful means in your practice that's beyond sitting and walking and that's why actually the family camps that I ran were, were much more around this reflective approach they were actually how do you bring it into your daily life the family camps were chaotic. There was 100 people, all different age groups, and there was not much silence. But there was a lot of insight, a lot of love, a lot of compassion. And people started to really, you know, understand the practice, including children, including teenagers. 
You know, I brought the same the same thing into teenage retreats as well. The first kind that you're talking about, the first kind of contemplation that Ajarn Sumedho taught, is that referring to, you know, the way that you know, I think of inquiry practice, the way you would contemplate a question, sort of the way Ramana Maharshi taught it. It doesn't it, have to be just... No, no exactly, exactly. That's it. And actually, he didn't really teach in a... Pers- I don't consider him a teacher in that way. His approach was really reflective. And it's a bit like what we're doing now. You know, this is a really, a re- you know, for me, it's a reflective conversation inquiry. It's not about what I say. It's not about, well, Amranato said this and we're going to take these five steps and then tomorrow we're going to implement in our daily life because it worked for him. Right? That's a process and they rarely work. Mm. Right? What I'm talking about is listening to this talk, listening to this conversation yeah, with an open and relaxed mind and noticing what is it for you? What is it for you right now that, that you like or you dislike? Can you see the nature of your mind? the way your mind moves, how your body is right now, how your breathing is. What do you need to do in your own life right now? What is that? Whether it's to do with the weather, it's hot or cold, whether it's, you know, we're talking at a time during the virus, whether there's fears around the virus or anything, whatever it is. Not to take on a sort of dogmatic, well, Amranato did this. He did, uh, I don't know, three-month retreat, and now I have to do a three-month retreat or he did sitting and walking all day long, or he did uh, activities and this, that, and the other. You know, what I learned in the monastery was to trust myself beyond what the books say, beyond what even Buddhism says, you know, the 10 this or the 5 that or the 7 the other things. Because they came about because um, they're easy to remember. You know, there, was no, there wasn't so much writing then. So, so they're, they're good. They are helpful to remind yourself, but really everything is in retrospect. It's backwards. In the Tibetan tradition, I was told that the young monastics would go out, would learn a lot of things, and then they would go on retreat. And in the retreat, they'd be able to put the, the book knowledge to the retreat experience. And in the West, we don't do the book knowledge, we go on retreat. So we start from sort of a wisdom side, and the ethics comes later on, because you make a choice about it yourself you think, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll think I'll adopt that. When we don't have some of the book knowledge, it can get really tricky because we can assign all sorts of things to states which are not quite what they are. That's really interesting. So, yeah, I'd love to explore that a little bit because I, I thought part of it is also even within Asia, Tibetan Buddhism tends to be more theoretical. They have this strong component where you apply it as well, but it does tend to be very theoretical, whereas... The Thai forest tradition in particular, I thought, is very just experiential. So I thought part of that was due to stylistic differences within the traditions as as well. Some of that you think is actually how it's unfolding in the West. I'm curious your thoughts on how, what was that like within your monastery, for example? Like, did you have formal times where you were studying the texts or? Amravati was like a big university. So I don't know about other monasteries, but where I studied, it was a big for me, and the way I was allowed to practice there it was just a university. You had great teachers, you had a lot of space, and it was up to you. I don't want to also make too many distinctions about traditions because they're also culturally linked. Yes. And you, again, you say you need to find out what works for you. It may be the Tibetan tradition works for you. Mm-hmm. It's finding out what's important. It's not one is better than the other or it's just not like that. 
not my experience, it's much better to find out, well, does this practice suit me? You know, we had a fantastic library at the monastery of all sorts of different traditions and faiths and religions and whatever. And it was great to be able to, given time to be able to explore across this and find things that are in common. The practicalities of it might be slightly different. The essence of it seemed to me very, very much the same. And what was important was to reflect on culture, you know, reflect on what was Thai or what was Tibetan, you know, what was Buddhism, what is the essence of the practice. And, and Ajahn Samedo only did the essence. He always pointed back to awareness. That's how I received it. So it was always coming back to this point, you know, this center point. Yeah, if you can talk actually a little bit more, talk a little bit more about what was working for you, you know, in terms of that training environment, whether it was a John Tomatoes style or anything else. But I'm curious, you know, looking back on your experience, what were really the most beneficial aspects of that monastic training that really shaped you? The whole lot. <laughs> there was not, you know, that, that was the thing with this approach was is to use everything. It was all really, really helpful. Towards my end of my time there, there was a whole load of politics that got involved. That was the reasons that I really left in the end. That's just the human realm. Everybody has to make a choice around that. How are you going to respond to that? But really, when I reflect back now, everything was really useful there. Even the things that I didn't really like, now I can see they were useful. And then you, you might say, well, why aren't you still there? But the thing was, I learned through that to trust myself and to trust myself was to the, the end of my time there. So I moved on. The core teaching of Ajahn Samedo, this intuitive awareness, which I considered to be really knowing, not gut intuition, but intuition, but the intuitive, which is a sort of sense of really knowing when awareness arises and what awareness is, the non-conceptual, non-thinking, non-labeling, the absence of concepts, ideas rights and wrongs, good and bads, up and down, all of that stuff, or anything that's related to the sort of thinking, conceptual process, that all arises in awareness. Mm -hmm. So I learned to understand my mind really well. That was the thing that I was really lacking. I didn't really understand my mind. I didn't see that my mind was an object in space. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't really matter. My body is an object in space, right? So form is an object in space. Monastery is an object in space. The things that I like and dislike, they're objects in space. So which is, which is more important, objects or the space? Which leads to more suffering, the objects or the space? The tricky area is that yeah. when, you, when you want to bring this into, into daily life, then you have your personality and nuts. Mm. And that's what was really lacking in the end. Although I, did a, I was very lucky during my time at Amravati, I, I did do some psychotherapy some group psychotherapy and then some personal psychotherapy, but that became tricky in the end, really. What made that tricky specifically? Well, that, it was tricky because some people, some of the monastics felt that wasn't a good thing to do and to combine it with the, you know, with a Theravadan approach. And so there was always that, well, it's a duality, isn't it, really? I mean, and so I valued that because I feel that awareness comes through your personality. And, and it's in a relationship, you, you know, you're always in a relationship with somebody else, yourself and somebody else. And so some of these tools are, re you know, psychotherapy tools were really helpful. You know, the way that our well-being uh, gets impacted by our childhood. And so if that well-being isn't there, a lot of the other practices that you use in the Theravadan form are sort of based on that well-being. 
And so having some form of psychotherapy or good counseling can really, can really help with that. That's been my personal experience. And for others, again, some people don't need it. You know, this is not a, I'm not saying everybody needs it. I needed it. So it's why you really have to understand yourself and how do you do that? Sometimes it's a good form. It's a meditation form. Sometimes it's psychotherapy form. Sometimes it's dancing, singing, art, whatever it is. You start to find out what you need in order to, to recognize who you really are. And so you can have more of that capacity. Well said. Yeah. Well said both on everyone having to find what works for them and just acknowledging the importance of other modalities too, I think is helpful. I mean, for me, I'll, I'll say psychotherapy has been extremely helpful as well. And it does have to be pointed out. I mean, it seems to, like you said, you don't want to absolutize anything, right? <laughs> Any sort yeah. of view, but we can even see how people do that, you know, and even some, I think monastics have done that, you know, perhaps coming from a different culture, psychotherapy wasn't a thing. And yet we see the, the issues that many teachers have had. And these were people who were undoubtedly very realized teachers in a very real sense, you know, and were very highly qualified to be teaching people meditation or even the Dharma. But then that doesn't translate into totally cleaning up all of your, your issues and that there was harm in many of these cases to students. Of course, sexual issues being a big one, but it, it does seem that for people who sort of make light of that, we've got a lot of high profile examples that sort of can't be dismissed. So that so seems to me like that that's a sort of, you know, a level confusion in a way. Like trying to bring the absolute into the relative. Same. You way. can't well, I don't see that you can really do that. The absolute, the non conceptual, non thinking, non judging space does not translate into the relative. It can soften up the edges, but it, in terms of these underlying psychological structures, that it may not transform any of them at all, as we, you know, you've expressed. Your lines of uh, sexual, you know, development, yeah, might be very poor. Your boundaries still might be very poor. It's a bit like uh, Ken Wilber says: anybody can have a sort of vertical experience. It doesn't translate. How wide can we go in the horizontal? You know, in the personality. You need to make our personalities clear enough for it to come through and really serve, serve ourselves and serve others. And yet some people would say, well, it didn't matter. I still got the insight. <laughs> so who's right? <laughs> yeah, right. Well, actually, right? You know, I think some of the confusion around this, and it's certainly at like a a beginner to intermediate lay practitioner level, I think it's almost really hard to avoid. I certainly went through it is just the ideas around the ego that one hears. You know, people get the impression various schools of yoga or Buddhism, not that this is correct understanding, but they get the idea that the ego is somehow the enemy, right? Or the ego is something that you want to get rid of, right? And of course, we need an ego. We need an ego to function in the world. And I think this points to really the heart of the discussion, the whole householder path for Buddhism, right? It becomes especially important for people engaged in the world. And I'll just share a little bit of what one of my teachers said on this topic and would love to hear your response. So Paul Muller Ortega, he's you know a scholar of Indian religions and he teaches in a Tantra Shaivite tradition. So different than Buddhism, but relevant in that 
Tantra really started out in a lot of ways as how, promoting a householder path, right? And so a big thing Paul would always say was there have always been, broadly speaking, two different paths in India, the renunciate path and the householder path. And we've sort of lost knowledge of this householder path in the West because so many people went to study with renunciates or renunciates came to the U.S. And, and those are a lot of the people who were bringing those forms of Buddhism or other forms of Hinduism to the West. And there's a lot of confusion that can get created from householders studying with renunciates. And I think one of the things that he would elaborate on specifically was about the role of the ego, you know, and how it's different in the renunciate path versus the householder. And it need not be a technical thing. There's just a practical matter of how one could understand if you're living in the world with responsibilities of, you know, mortgage, building a business, relationships, all these things that you're going to need <laughs> an ego is just going to have to be engaged a lot more. Your personality is going to come out more. And it doesn't mean that the awareness can't notice it, but there's a different kind of model there than people who have the the luxury to kind of go deep in that renunciate path. So I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts on that are, what you see in terms of the confusion people talk around the ego, transcending the ego. I don't, I don't particularly believe that because if you look at Amravati, Amravati was something like a half a million pound business with uh, mm. 30 different nationalities, maybe 50, I don't know. It was, it was a huge amount of different people there of different experiences with children, without children, and as you stay there longer, the complexities just get more and more. You know, as a monk anyway, you get more and more involved. You get drawn back into budgets and health and safety and child protection policy. That's to run the family camp. Involved me going on child protection courses and dealing with child protection inquiries even at one point. So I'm not sure there's that. Like it's more on a personality level is like trying to find out what, again, what you need, mm. you know, because like renunciation can be really helpful. If you translate renunciation into moderation, how do you moderate your behavior? Then that works for the lay life, really. So I get what he's saying that as a renunciant, your, your focus is somewhere else. Certainly at Amravati, the more that you live there, the more that you had to deal with those things. When I started going out on, as a sort of freelance monk, like I, even though I was keeping the monks' rules, I had to deal with more and more complexity, you know, like putting on a retreat or hiring cooks and all sorts of financial things I had to be part of. So the thing is, is, is just still crux in a way, which is common to both, is how do you understand the ego? And it seems to me that maybe in the West, put so much emphasis on developing the ego, that's all we know. Mm -hmm. we don't see anything outside of it mm -hmm. i don't know maybe in the past it was a lot easier you know we were farmers and working more physically and so working with your body it's easier to sort of develop a, a meditation practice in uh, daily life i'm not saying either that the you know the monastic form is the brilliant or that it's the best thing to do again if it's something that you get called you know you've got a calling to and it you think that you ought to go and do it well then maybe you, you can experiment with that and I see, you know, like with the people that I coach, they don't need that. Mm -hmm. They don't. I'm working with people that are really, really busy, you know, I mean, exceptionally busy, like meetings from morning till evening every day of the week and traveling and this, that and the other as an executive coach. And, the, and they've been able to develop a very good mindfulness practice and understand their ego. 
and use that to serve others. So it's definitely possible. The question is, why would people want to join the monastery? You know, what is that all about? As a young man, I was a bit of a warrior in a way, and I joined a warrior tradition. That's another reason maybe for joining. You know, it was hardcore. You know, the Thai forest tradition is, you know, a begging bowl and less sleep and hardcore meditation practice. Yeah, that sense of belonging. And there's a sense of identity right? that comes from that. Talking about Exactly. Yeah, I think that's a very important point. And as a young man, that could have well and probably and did shape me. You know, it helped me. But uh, you could also do the same in a men's group. In fact, I got more connection from a men's group than I probably did with the monks that I live with at the monastery. I joined a men's group as a monk just because I wanted to experience what other men feel and behave and that. And then I started to see, oh, here's a, a plasterer, a plumber, a builder, a shop owner. They're inquiring about their lives in their own way. Maybe not at the level that I did it because I had the luxury of being able to do that and, and all the techniques, but they were inquiring. They were open to it. What were some of the big takeaways that you learned from that experience that surprised you? Just what were some of the key things you learned from that that might have surprised you or interested you? Brotherly love, the man's emotional realm, the sense of, yeah, real, a connection amongst men. I did have some good friends at the monastery as well, but on the whole, there wasn't much of a community. Interesting, because I would think there's such a strong community, but there's just the simple fact that you're observing noble silence so much of the time. Is, no, is that no, that's just... not true either. Amravati was a very talkative place <laughs> during the times when it was open to the community. So again, you see, it's interesting how these ideas, again, about what a monastic life might look like, mm -hmm. you know, or how it is internally. But obviously, you know, you're celibate, you don't handle money. So that is a different way of relating to the world. Big time. And a lot of the other levels, it was actually very similar. <laughs> you have to deal with politics and personalities and you know, all sorts of different things. But the thing was, you learned to use them. That's what I learned to use them until it came to a point where it didn't work for me anymore. But up to that point, I was really using them. When I left, I just, I still used it. I used those practices. And then when I stopped being a monk, I still use them now. What are some of the most... To this day, that stands out. I know you said the whole lot, but just focusing on the, since you yeah, mentioned practice. It, yeah, right? it's totally simple. And that's awareness. That's it. Your ability to be able to stay with whatever is happening. That is a superpower. You know, I'm not talking about not feeling anxious or fear or upset or anger or any of these other strong emotions. They certainly came up since I disrobed. I've been ill. I've been seriously ill a couple of times. Lost money, relationship. You know, living in a new country, you know, done lots of lots of change, but awareness is still there. Mm -hmm. The outside form has changed. Yeah, like right now, I'm wearing a pair of jeans, my blue work shirt. <laughs> I'm not wearing my brown robes. That way of being is not a mindset. A way of being is uh, is still there, and that's a great gift. And you don't have to do it in a monastery. You don't have to do it in a retreat center even. You just have to notice what's happening right now. Mm. Why is it some uh, farmers really get insight, you know, or plasterers or plumbers or builders or office workers or mathematicians? You know, there's all sorts of different people that have also been able to see this, you know, seeing awareness. may not be a huge amount of people, but they have. There's a certain aspect to it which is universal. When you have students of yours come to you who really want to, let's say, you know, they've got a passion for it, they have the time, they have all those things, they want to go deep, yes. you know, into their practice. Yes. And 
Broadly speaking, they can go down one of two routes. Maybe they're considering on the one hand ordaining. Yeah. And maybe on the other hand, they're considering doing something like long-term retreat practice. You know, it's possible. It sounds like you did this at Goenka. I know at, you know, IMS, especially the Forest Refuge, there are people who stay there for a year or two, five years. Mm -hmm. What are some of the things you would just kind of coach them? Acknowledging it's different for everyone, but even the questions you would get them to think about the difference between those two options. <laughs> it leaves my mind empty. <laughs> the question leaves my mind empty because it is so dependent on each person. You know, mm -hmm. so that person, you see, it's interesting if we just take this as an inquiry right now. So the person isn't here. So the conditions aren't here for it, for an answer to arise. That's the conditioned nature of the world, isn't it? So I'm just, if I think about it, then I've just got an object in my mind about an imaginary person for which I give an imaginary answer. When the situation arises, then the response arises with it. That's trusting in awareness, isn't it? You see, So we can never really know in any given situation about what is right or what is wrong for anybody until those situation really arises. Some people might, might need to go, might want to, and it might benefit them doing uh, five years in a retreat center or whatever. I mean, but the idea of going deep is a, for me, is another spiritual con job. It's a bit of the marketing message. The spiritual, sorry, what was the con? It's a spiritual con. It's part of the spiritual market. Yeah, it's a part of the spiritual marketing to go deep. The next stage. How can you go the next stage in awareness? Mm. There's no next stage in awareness, is there? It is more seeking, right? And right. I know Ajarn Tomatoes, I was talking about that. We're always seeking enlightenment you know we're seeking the next somewhere else you know there was a big shift for me when i went from practicing in a more i don't know how you'd say it because i think these are all great different schools other schools of mindfulness or buddhism where they're they're working with more dualistic other techniques but when i had someone point me to awareness it was a huge shift you know and it was this total sense of stopping seeking just truly recognizing it was for the first time it was just this sense that oh yeah this is it <laughs> this is actually just it and then i shared that experience with one of my teachers and she said you know that's true on in the absolute sense and it's also just true we do have to seek on a relative level we do have to seek in order to get there but you did have to go to amaravati you know in order to be able to give this answer now and ajarn Sumedho had to be able to find ajarn shah so how do there is that paradox of, of seeking well, to realize there's nothing. To only seek. if there's somebody going to seek. But even even that, right? I mean, I know what you mean when you say that. But if you're coming in on day one, having that conversation with someone, I mean, that's immediately over someone's head. And we can talk about direct versus more gradual paths. And some people, that direct path, boom, it points it to them right away. And I also know that's a Jarn Tomato style. And so I can hear that coming from you. And I appreciate that because Adi Ashanti, who I like, is always doing that too. But there's that interesting debate between the direct and the gradual because... So I do both. <laughs> That's the truth. I do both. Of course. You yeah. Do. Why would you not want to do that? That's, again, a level confusion. Let's say you do what you just did to someone, you know, pointing that there's nothing to seek. There's I never no do one. It. <laughs> <laughs> so you wouldn't do it, right? You wouldn't do that if you were with Say a client who was newer to, to mindfulness or meditation. No, definitely not. No. Okay. 
So that's different. It was just because it was between two. That makes sense. So I was thinking more in terms of the question around what would I do if somebody are in front of me? The thing is, I don't know that because the condition isn't mm-hmm. there. And that's how we get into yeah. the dogmatic approach again, right? Gradual versus immediate, whatever it is, all these ideas is, you know, the intuitive awareness is to be in that situation and respond accordingly and to trust what responds and where that comes from. You know, so right now I hear this sound of silence, this high-pitched tone. Even whilst I'm talking, I've heard it for most of the conversation. So just rest in that. And uh, it's sort of a pointer to the, to the sense of openness. The system seems to be open. My system seems to be open. The sense of relaxation in the body and the mind. So I trust that more than my views and opinions about how it ought to happen or what I ought to do. You know, this person is like that. And from a developmental aspect on the relative, then it's, it's important to use the thinking mind a little bit and use your experience. But it's really hard to make sweeping statements about what one ought to do because it never worked for me. And I haven't seen it really work for other people that well. And that's why I didn't want to phrase it that way as what's the right thing, but just... I guess in more in terms of general trade-offs, general pros and cons that people tend to find. But I also understand if you... Yeah, it's so hard to know. I understand. Yeah. Yeah. It brings up the the difficulty of language in general, right? That's it. That's the one though. Yeah, that's exactly. And the thing is, isn't, is to inquire into the language and inquire into why do I need that five-year thing or why do I need the to become a monk. I just didn't have that inquiry myself. I just turned up and that's how I've lived my life. I stopped being a monk because I woke up on a three-month retreat and it said it was all over. I had it about two weeks into the retreat, so I doubted it for another two and a half months. Mm. And then I doubted it when I left again as a conscious practice, as a thinking practice. You're going to give up this, you're going to give up that, you're going to give up the other. So again, a contemplative style. And all I heard was the answer was, yes, you are. So I did. I had no idea what the outcome would be. There were some practical things I knew. I was going to leave Australia because I had a religious workers visa, returned to England, then ended up in the Netherlands where I live now. And I had no real understanding about the culture or the society or how things work here or businesses or whatever. Start again. (laughs) Sort of beginner's mind in a way. And the willingness just to fail multiple times and be with that. And that's okay. And then this trusting in awareness, this really resting in awareness. And of course, you could say, well, is it a developmental aspect? Because there has, you know, I have had to to build on ideas about running a business or learning how to network or the practical things. I also forget there's a lot of things that I've missed. You know, I've missed a lot of TV, (laughs) a lot of TV. I've missed a lot of events in society. I only went to the cinema the first time in I don't know, uh, probably 15, 20 years in uh, like a few years ago. You know, I went to the hairdresser only last year, first time in 20 years. It was quite exciting, actually. You know, when I left the monastery, shopping was really exciting, you know, for a while. It's like, wow, look at this, you know. And then certain conditions would arise. You know, when I go to go shopping, I would get uh, I would get overwhelmed because there was so many options it still come back to this place of awareness and then try to understand what is that all about, you know, in terms of a psychological response as well. 
a theme that I'm really here coming up for you is faith. You were faith, it sounds like was very important, probably throughout your time there, but especially as you made that transition. And as this is something that I've really come to appreciate before the, or recently, I should say the importance of faith. It's something that I think growing up the faith I was raised in Christianity, I really rejected that because I equated faith with only blind faith. And I've come to appreciate there are other dimensions of faith and that faith's very important. I'd love to hear what you learned throughout your time in the monastery, and especially as you made that transition about your relationship with faith and how you think about faith. I would use the word trust instead of faith. Okay. And the only reason for that is that at some point in your monastic career, if you stick it long enough, faith goes. You lose faith and you get completely disillusioned with, uh, of which I experienced. You know, you get disillusioned with everything. And then in this awareness, that's also all right. So I've learned that even when all these things go, you know, your body goes, your mind goes sometimes, you you get unstable and everything, somehow awareness is still there. Even when you think it's not, it's there. This recalibrating yourself to awareness, to to space itself, that's, that's what's really massively helped in this transition space you know you could say i have faith in awareness i guess i mean that's another way (laughs) you could say that it's this willingness to really really know awareness and know when it's when it's arising when the mind has moved away from that place to know there's the ego the personality the conditions and that that's all right and that that willingness to be a hundred percent with the with the personality with that situation gives you the sort of radical acceptance and then awareness appears again because the you've moved attention onto it's the limitation of language you know you've allowed awareness back in or you've recognized it it doesn't quite work like that but <laughs> i don't know quite how to describe it but it's this willingness to accept the the personality really know it for what it is so now i love how you really distilled it down to essence you yeah. know of just faith, just trust and awareness. Yeah. And knowing a jar and tomato, I can totally see that. And it's beautiful. Yeah. You know, I mean, I would think for so many people, you know, and they talk about yes. faith, like I read Faith by Sharon Salzberg, which I found right. to be very helpful. Yeah. She talked about faith in the teachings of the Buddha, you know, having yeah. faith in the Dharma. And of course, you don't need to buy that the Dharma, the entire package. I was about to say, what about even faith in the teachings that pointed you towards awareness or even that? I mean, is even no, that no, fellow? That all falls away at some point. It all goes. Because it's a raft, isn't it? You know, the, the raft reality. metaphor. You get on the raft, you paddle along, and then you think, well, there's the other side. Let go of the raft, right? I get the point what you're trying to say. You know, I it's guess- useful to trust or take faith or take refuge in Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, you know, all of that stuff. But what is it? What actually does that mean? And maybe, you know, if you're listening, you think, oh, God, all he's been saying is about awareness. And I would say that's why it's also good to combine it with a a psychological response based on human development, the way that we develop as adults. You can free yourself a bit more from the ego, from identity. Although I've been just barking on (laughs) about awareness, awareness, awareness. For me, anyway, it's been really important to explore identity and how that's formed and how it's been shaped and the conditions around it and why I experience those things. And so probably, you know, if you've not yourself really had a 
and the experience of what you think awareness is, my, my guess is most people have. They just don't know how to recognize it. Ajahn Buddha Dasa called it small nibbanas. Mm. I love that word. We've all tasted it in a way. We've had these moments of which the personality, you know, the ego just goes and we have these moments of clarity, total clarity. They might only be a second or whatever, but I think a lot of people have had them and then they don't know what to do with it. And so they just go back to what's normal, which is the ego. And that's why I was saying about the Tibetans, you know, why sometimes it might be better to have some sort of language so that you can be able to describe or label, not describe, label the experience. I'm not saying, oh, well, you know, giving you some sort of obtruse knowledge or something that, you know, oh, this is awareness and it's non-conceptual. And because then everybody scratches their head and say, so what actually is that? And so you have to start somewhere. And when I arrived at the monastery, I didn't understand any of the language at all. You know, I didn't understand any of the Buddhist language. It took me a long time to get to grips with the Four Noble Truths and the Oakfold Path. Like the way that we were taught to reflect on the Four Noble Truths is really helpful. You know, the Four Noble Truths have got three aspects, the intellectual understanding, you know, functional understanding, and then really knowing them. So we can have an intellectual understanding of awareness, and then we can have a sort of functional understanding of it and then you really know it for yourself and as humans beings we are set up for it we are set up for that recognition of who we really are that's kind of the essence of the journey i'm coming to appreciate as one of my teachers likes to say consciousness wants to become conscious of itself right and there's something that you just said that reminded me of that it's just that it's that yeah and so to allow yourself to to see that and of course we've you know, those that have got traumas or whatever, they upsets and uh, life difficulties, that can both be a hindrance and it can be a great gift. Mm-hmm. Well, one thing you shared, you know, on that last point was just about this topic of identity. Yeah. You know? And I know we want to touch on that in sort of our next conversation. I know we're at the hour mark here or a little over. So we could easily go into it, but we've been going for about an hour. And so if you want to take a pause and sort of pick up on that in the next conversation, we can do that. Yeah. I think that's a yeah. good idea. That sounds good. Yeah. Let's sounds do good. that. Yeah. Perfect place to wrap up. So thank you so much, Amarinato. Really, really interesting. I learned a lot and I'm sure the listeners will as well. And looking forward to picking up on this. Great. Thank you very much. It was lovely to be with you, Adrian. Really nice. Very good questions. Thank you. So talk soon. Thank you.